Hi everyone, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to America Daps, the climate change podcast. So this is a very special episode. Um, have some housekeeping order. This is the final episode of the of the year, and then I'm going to take a break for a couple weeks. I'll be back on the air in early January, but I'm going to take a, a break. This is that final episode. So um, there's some housekeeping items I'd like to get through before we have sort of the, the main content of the show. Just want to say that this is going to be a little bit different podcast for listeners. So let me just start off. If this is your first time coming to America Daps, and that's, there's a, it's could easily happen because it's a relatively new podcast. You get new listeners each time. This is your first time. Please stop. <laughs> go back, go back to the iTunes page, or if you're getting this from my website at americadaps.org, try out another episode. Those episodes are what you typically would get from America Daps. I, if you want to stay and listen to this episode, please, I, I think you'll enjoy it. But at the same time, if you want sort of a regular episode, go back, select another one, maybe the previous one, the Companies versus Climate Change or my discussion with Michael Mann. But this is a little bit unusual, just a little bit more fun than what we typically have on the podcast. This, And I'm calling this the holiday special because, you know, some of you guys are traveling for the holidays and you're going to go on long car rides, you're going to be in airplanes and you like listening to podcasts and climate change is just this big sobering issue. And we have a little bit of that, but at the same time, I have some fun in this episode. And so this is that Star Wars holiday special. So I just want to warn you if this, if you're a new time listener, go try another one if you want a flavor of what I typically do. So that being said, I just want to do sort of a bit of a recap too. I started this podcast back in July and it's been an amazing half a year. We, well, I'm up to 22 episodes now. I publish this weekly. It's actually a, a lot more work than I thought it would be, but I've had some amazing guests on over the last six months. And I would really like to just point out my first four guests, Dr. Molly Cross, Dr. Nikhil Advani, Dr. Nick Fisichelli, and Bob Glazer. These guys were old colleagues and friends that agreed to come on the podcast when I wasn't even sure what I was going to do with this podcast. So thank you guys. You were great guests and I appreciate you kind of sticking your neck out. Some of you probably didn't even really know what a podcast was. And so the rest of my guests that have been on, of course, thank you for being on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed being on it. I think we have fun conversations. And also, I really want to thank my listeners. Every week I get more listeners and it's sort of exciting to watch the podcast grow. And I've just been dazzled by the diversity of these guests, where they're from. I can, you know, I have stats that show me where people are from. I heard from someone from Portugal who's listening and sharing with colleagues in Lisbon, Portugal. I had someone from Shikoto Island, Japan contact me asking me for some advice on something. He was a fan of the podcast and people are just coming from everywhere. And this is America Daps, but there's interest from this topic from around the world. Occasionally someone will write me, which is just, I mean, it's usually once a week or twice a week. And I just love getting these random emails. I heard from someone who is a listener and is sort of involved with the whole prepper culture, you know, people kind of preparing for the end of times. And the, the, there was interest in the, what's happening with adaptation. I thought that was very interesting. Also, you know, I want to actually read an email that I got from someone that, I mean, here, let me just read it. And this is from Brian. I won't say the last name, but dear Doug, just want to let you know that I'm very impressed with America Daps. I want to tell you that I myself am trying to get into climate change and sustainable fields in content like America Daps really helps support my decision to do so. I think I 
I found it at the perfect time where I was otherwise feeling pretty down about climate change considering recent political votes and appointees. As you can imagine, what an amazing email to get get in me all like that and how people are listening to the podcast. I mean, it's mainly these guests coming on and talking about the amazing thing that they're doing, inspiring listeners. And I, you have that kind of story, please write me. I love getting those emails and, and I'm inspired myself. I also love hearing from my former colleagues who are probably like, what the heck's Doug up to? And you know, people like Ann Cosmo, Katie Miller, Sam Higuchi, you guys know who you are, your listeners. I appreciate it. And you spread the word. Thank you so much. And, and I like to observe too, that this podcast has really opened my eyes to a much larger adaptation universe. I thought I was an expert in the field and mainly dealing with conservation, but there's so many amazing things going out there. It's a much bigger universe. It's going to be the great, well, I mean, it's going to be the, the, the grand story of the future as we adapt to climate change. And so this podcast is tapping into what's going on right now, some of these early stories, and I'm just blown away how big this universe really is. Okay, again, this is an unusual unusual episode, so bear with me. I also want to thank a few other folks. I want to really thank Randy Olson. Randy Olson, the filmmaker, author, science communicator, who has been a huge supporter of this podcast, has given me ideas, done outreach, has introduced me to Mike Mann. Thank you so much, Randy. Um, I want to thank all my colleagues who have recommended other guests that have come on the podcast. You know, at first I thought, would I even be able to get anyone to come on the podcast besides the people I know. And then people started recommending other people. And I think, you know, people don't mind coming on and sharing their work. And then it gets out there. It's on, it's permanently out there that you can share a, a podcast. So it becomes a resource for people. I'd like to thank Dan Ackerstein and Tim Watkins, both longtime cheerleaders, longtime friends and contributors to the podcast. David Doug Canner, I actually, when you're a podcaster, you have all sorts of technology issues you have to deal with, and they have actually been there supporting me in that respect. And I want to thank my wife for supporting me as I stick my neck out in this podcast thing. And I'd like to thank my family, my in-laws, Ensign and Lana. Thank you for all your support. And my two boys, Jet and Max, who I hope I can help leave a better world, which is going to be a challenge with climate change, but I worry about them. But uh, I love my two boys. And also the universe of podcasters. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, contact me. I could help you out. It is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but it's an opportunity to kind of share your message. And so the podcast universe is very helpful and I would not have been able to do what I do if there weren't other podcasters out there being helpful. So stay tuned for next year. I got upcoming guests. I have Dr. Jesse Keenan from Harvard University talking adaptation resilience in the built environment. I have Sean Martin, who's the director of adaptation resilience, the World Wildlife Fund. Randy Olson, who I'd mentioned earlier, who's a filmmaker, author, and a storyteller is going to come on. We're going to talk about coral reefs and the the value of storytelling. And Dr. Karen Alter, who's a sea level rise researcher out of South Florida, who's going to come on and talk about ground truthing sea level rise. We will be off and running in January. And also I want to acknowledge that we have a new president coming in. I will stay on top of this. We don't know what's in store for us with climate change. It doesn't look good. And we're going to talk about that in the later part of this episode. And I want to use this podcast to highlight those issues. You know, I thought this might just be a podcast where we're just highlighting really feel good stories, but we might really have to kind of, what does it mean to adapt? And is it potentially an avenue to address climate change in ways that we didn't think we were going to even have to do a year ago? And, you know, I hope I can get some federal government employees onto the podcast. I know it's tricky for you to come on, but if you'd like to come on and talk about what's sort of going on in the federal government under this new administration, you can come on as a private citizen and we'll work it out. But I want to encourage you because the public is going to be desperate for information. So contact me at my website, americadaps.org, and you can contact me via my email there. If you have ideas for guests, please let me know. I hear from you all the time. And okay, on that note, once again, check out some of my other episodes if you're new to this. Um, today, I invited Dan Ackerstein and Tim 
Watkins on, and we're going to talk about the top five climate change stories of the year. We each have our own top five. It's entertaining. It's informative, but it's also a very sobering discussion. And as a bonus, and this is where we get a bit silly, America Daps goes to the movies. And I talked to Dan Ackerstein about climate change and how it's used in the movies. It's a goofy conversation from what I normally do, but for those who are just looking for lighter listening as they're on those eight-hour car rides, stick around. Dan is very funny, and we have a good time just talking about climate change at the movies. So, okay, that was a lot long preface to the episode, and uh, I hope you stick around again. If you're new to America Daps, please check out another episode to kind of get a sense of what I like an average episode. But I think this is hopefully it'll be kind of a fun and lighthearted episode for regular listeners. So, all right, let's keep this moving. Thanks again. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Daps. This is the holiday special. This is the special year in review. This is sort of an unusual episode, and I've got two amazing guests on, one that you're semi-familiar with, Tim Watkins, and I've got a special guest on, Dan Ackerstein. Hey, Dan and Tim. Hey, Doug. Hello, Doug. Dan. You know, I feel like we should have some Vince Guaraldi music playing or something since you said this was the holiday special. So <laughs> It's like the Star Wars holiday special. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I am wearing my Princess Leia Jabba the Hutt costume right now. Uh, TMI. Yes. Thank you for that. I'd, I'd be wearing it even if we weren't on the podcast. <laughs> okay, Dan, briefly, who are you? Uh, Doug, I am a sustainability consultant uh, headquartered in Santa Cruz, California. All right, Tim. Everyone knows who Tim is, but Tim, um, <laughs> no introductions needed. You've been on the Appetition Wine Power Hour for many, many episodes, but w- welcome back. And so what I wanted to do here is the year review. I've, I've got other parts of this episode. I, Dan will actually be coming back for part two, where he and I attempt to talk about pop culture and climate change in a much longer discussion about movies and climate change. And so Dan will be back in the second part of this episode. But what I want to do is, as part of this year review, is have the top five climate change stories of the year. And so what we're going to do is quickly kind of go around. Each of us are going to list our top five sort of in order, and we're going to count down to number one, which we think is the number one story. And so without further ado, I'm going to give the honors to our new guest, Dan Ackerstein. What was the top five, number five climate change story of the year for you? Thank you, Doug. Thanks for giving me the uh, the lead off here. Uh, it, it, for my top five, there's there's a gap between uh, the top four and the fifth, but the fifth I think is is significant from a media standpoint. I, uh, number five on my list was is sort of a broad category uh, that I've titled the normalization of of adaptation specific coverage in the media. Um, this is the first year that I can remember where articles, uh, long pieces about adaptation were something that I noticed repeatedly and in multiple. Um, multiple venues, and that was striking to me. That that suddenly adaptation, uh, Miami, New York, Southern California, adaptation is a prominent part of the media conversation. So that that was number five for me. Wow, Tim, any thoughts? I just my first initial reaction is like, wow, what's ass kissing for his, you know, coming onto the America <laughs> Daps podcast? But hey, I love it, Dan. Great, great, great one. Tim, yeah, that's that's a really great observation. And Dan, I'm interested that the particular examples you just um, came to mind for you were cities, right? Right. Um, and I'm wondering if there are any, you know, more rural or maybe particular economic sectors that pop into mind, like I don't know, adaptation in agriculture or adaptation in the insurance industry or something like that. 
You know, that's where I've seen it penetrate is I guess what I'm talking about is is this sort of mainstream media coverage. And I think that that has that has risen to to sort of my visibility. And, and, and again, I'm not an adaptation professional. I'm not even a climate change professional. Um, so it's really only come into my sort of limited media spotlight when it has been filtered through um, the large, large sort of urban publications like the Boston Globe, uh, yeah. the Miami Herald, the New York Times, et cetera. Um, but boy, it sure is striking the degree to which those papers are thinking about adaptation, talking about adaptation, and that they're sort of starting to deal with it as if it is inevitable. Okay. Good one, Dan. Uh, Tim, you're number five. Well, Doug, uh, I'm going through my list here and realizing that while Dan picked out some really positive, hopeful changes um, in the year, uh, my list is pretty negative. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we'll have a little bit of a contrast here for the listeners. But my number five was a little bit of science from Jim Hansen at NASA, um, who published a pretty influential paper kind of late spring that predicted much, 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 much faster sea level rise than most scientists were predicting and, and willing to accept or to model. And it created a bit of debate within the scientific community that I think has not been entirely resolved. But uh, he and his colleagues were out there, um, you know, saying, look, there are these feedback mechanisms uh, having to do with ocean currents that uh, are not being considered in the typical climate change sea level rise models. And if you consider those feedbacks, uh, we're looking at sea level rise that is much, much, much faster than uh, than we've been thinking it will be. You know, I don't remember that paper, but interestingly enough, I had I recorded a podcast today with um, Karen Bolter from South Florida, and she's just a sea level rise expert, and she was talking about some of the projects that she does just to ground truth sea level rise. And we're talking rinky-dink levels of sea level rise in South Florida right now and creating all sorts of trouble. So, yeah, that paper is not a, a good thing, a sign of good things to come. Dan, any thoughts on that story? Well, I would, I'd like to just sort of observe that my list goes dark real quick here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I started out on a, on a high point, but woo, we are, we are going into the Thunderdome, um, on items four through one. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Duly noted. All right. So my number five, we're going to get through all of these. These are 15 of these. Okay. To me, um, and I did a recent podcast on this, so that's why I kind of came front and center is that massive coral reef die off this year and in, in many ways, it's an underreported story. I think we get so used to seeing, all right, coral reef bleaching, Australia, Great Barrier Reef. But, you know, if you really dig into it, it was a serious die off. And we're talking about a massive sort of, you know, we're talking about a system that could disappear a lot more quickly than we realize. And, you know, there's always going to be pockets of it, but it, it was interesting in this conversation I had with Randy Olson that the sort of the media attention on the issue isn't really recognizing what this might mean if an entire ecosystem dies. So that, to me, was an underreported story. Mm-hmm. That was my number four, by the way. Oh, excellent. And, and my number four as well. Oh, well, jump, let's jump right into right. it. Go to your number four. Any additional <laughs> thoughts on that? So uh, I agree, underreported, and I think it's consistent with almost all media coverage of um, ocean and fisheries-related issues. The the sea is essentially an invisible wilderness and the media has no idea how to cover it or how to, to speak with urgency about what's happening beneath the ocean. 
And here we have a, 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 the breakdown of an absolutely critical engine for biomass and um, ocean productivity and the collapse. If, if ocean systems collapse in the way that seems to be unfolding, uh, the implications for human civilization, I think, are even more extreme than sea level rise. And it's just not interesting because it's underwater. Excellent. Excellent insight. Tim, follow up on your number four. Wow. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, we are going dark very fast. Yeah, I, I just think that I, I agree completely that changes to the ocean are underreported. And actually, they're really not reported, period. Shamefully not reported. And some of my next items here have to do with records and, you know, we're acidifying the ocean. The ocean is much more acidic than it has ever been. And yet that is something that is never talked about, uh, in the, in the media. So. Well, and part of that is because I think people don't realize that the ocean has ever been acidic or is acidic at all. I mean, there's a, mm-hmm. a massive knowledge gap there to the yeah. first you have to get people to accept the idea that the ocean could be acidic without just sort of boiling the skin off your body. Then you have to figure out that there's a, a, a pH balance that's changing and what that means. Right, right. Okay, well, uh, stay tuned for that, Randy Olson. That'll be mid-year, but, I mean, Randy just goes off on this issue being underreported. It, it's Randy mm-hmm. being classic Randy, and it, it's it's going to be a great episode, so following up on your number fours. Okay, my number four, and I, we don't need to dwell on this, but I just thought every we- year we need to recognize this. It's going to be the warmest year on record. 2016 will be the hottest year ever recorded. Just another reminder, and I know it was an El Nino year, but it sounds like this year will overwhelmingly surpass previous years of warming. And, you know, we hear this nonsense about, well, we've cooled since 98, and it's just like this is another sort of glaring reminder that the Earth is warming. These aren't 10-year time frames, 20-year time frames. Every year it seems like we're breaking a record. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my number two, warmest year ever. So, Dan, any thoughts before we jump to your number three? Eh, I think it's a hoax. That's okay. <laughs> oh, well, that might be your number one story. Um, <laughs> all right, your number three. Uh, my number three story is the extent of sea ice, particularly the Arctic, but also the Antarctic. I think that that is a, a powerful story for two reasons. One, because the graphs are mind-blowing and and, and compelling to, to even a layperson. And two, the the visual sort of representation that that is uh, that is afforded by by this idea that sea ice is disappearing is really powerful um i think that that is a big story and one that that has the potential to be compelling so Dan and I have never met. We live on opposite coasts, but um, my number three was exactly the same thing, the Arctic sea ice minimum. Wow. And I would add um, <clears throat> the, the fact that very soon there can be easy and regular travel, sea travel between, you know, through the, through the uh, Arctic Ocean, let's say between Europe and Asia, uh, between the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Um, that economic change in trade, uh, I think, will be very notable, and I think the press is really going to pick up on that. Plus the faunal exchange, right? Pacific Pacific Ocean organisms showing up in the Atlantic and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, apparently there have been some gray whales, which are a Pacific species showing up in the Atlantic, and that's just shocking. So, yeah, that was my number three. The ice is just disappearing. Tim, can I ask you a question about that? Yes. Um, economic uh, cost or benefit? 
Well, well both, right? I mean, they're going right. to be winners and losers. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 you know, the, the, the benefits and the risks associated with traveling through the Arctic are something that people have been interested in, of course, for many centuries. And now it's becoming a reality. And I, it, it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out, um, mm-hmm. both in the economy and just people's understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, I don't have much to add to you, Tim, on what you're describing, what's going to happen with the Arctic. All I, you know, to me, I just want to recognize the cruel irony is like now that the Arctic is sort of like unraveling, we're, they're saying that we're potentially even getting more things like the polar vortex, like we're getting this colder weather based on this chaos that's happening up north. And so people are thinking, oh, look, look at this cold weather. And, you know, in in some ways that has this sort of superficial uh, ability to impact people's want it to respond to climate change, which is just this cruel irony of the whole thing. So anyway, all right. I, I got lost with some replication there. So Dan, you got your three and then you two had number three. So now it's my number three, right? Yes. Okay. So to me, the third biggest climate change story is the election of Donald Trump. Third biggest. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Um, and let me explain. Please. Okay. So, Listen, Donald Trump famously said climate change is a hoax. It's a moving target on what he really thinks on climate change. After he got elected, you know, there was a, sort of these little micro movements that maybe it's not so bad. Al Gore visited, even Leo DiCaprio visited him and his daughter. But then we started seeing the appointments to the cabinet. And I think that's really represents like what's going to happen. You know, policy is made within the government, not within people's family members who weigh in on an issue. So... That's not very encouraging, but what sort of the silver lining um, is, what do we call it, Tim, when it, we, it's not quite silver lining, it's like silver molecules, <laughs> that, you know, Obama has accomplished a lot on climate change, but in reality, he hasn't accomplished that much, and government is so slow to do things. And so Trump can cause a lot of trouble in the federal government, but at the same time, the government actually can't accomplish much as we think it can. And... I'm not being naive. There's going to be some bad things happening, but you know the, bureauc- the bureaucracy is going to gum up a lot of what he w- wants to do. And if he wants to be very proactive in doing negative things, it's still very slow too. And so that's not how you want to run your government. But that to me is like a, you know potential way of mitigating what's going on there. And so and I'm also very excited that states might step up. Jerry Brown from California gave this amazing speech where he was talking about even launching climate satellites if the federal government isn't going to, like, do its job. So, you know, some of the states that have more resources, they're going to do some really cool things. Anyone? <laughs> um, Doug, I have, I have a thought. You know, I, I thought it was interesting that you said you're um, you're not being naive because you're being naive. <laughs> it's going to be worse, uh, right? I mean, yeah, it's a whole new planet of bad, but we'll get back to that. We'll, we'll, we'll come around to that because I suspect that Trump's election may be on Tim's list as well as mine. Yes, but it's not number three. All right. No. Okay, then number two, Dan Ackerstein. So number two is one that I struggled with because I – so number two on my list is the complete and utter absence of climate change from the presidential debates. I found that, you know – I mean, it, although it is a, a, a tradition now in the presidential election that both candidates will pretend that climate change is not an issue worth discussing um, in front of the electorate, I did. I, I just found it miraculous that neither candidate felt like that was something worth bringing up in any context 
um, to be wielded as a weapon against the other. Um, the presumption of sort of either partisanship or indifference that's inherent in leaving that issue on the on the table is remarkable to me. You know, you're funny you mentioned that. It did not make my top five, but I did con- consider it. So, yeah, the the election and, you know, the lack of conversation. But then I'm like, of course it wasn't going to make it in. Even if it was like two rational people would have made it in. So I kind of put it off, but uh, thought about it to the last minute. Yeah, there. I mean, there are a lot of those issues that don't, you know, that just that weren't in the debates. You know, I mean, I don't think they spent much time talking about abortion. I don't think they spent much time talking about taxes because – for the most part, everyone knows where the two parties stand and there's, there's not a lot to be debated. But it, it was incredible to me that, that neither one of them felt like it was something worth, worth mentioning. Yeah. Right. I would agree with that. Number two for me was the warmest year ever. And you already commented on that. So I don't think we need any further discussion, but it is just warming and warming and warming. No doubt. Okay. Well, my number two is the Paris Agreement. And, you know, this has happened from even last December, but we've seen it un- un- unfold this year. And I actually had someone who was involved with the Paris Agreement. And, you know, he, he gave me some background information. I did a couple podcasts with him on, like, how this really can unfold, even if Trump is not willing to go along. And it's not all is lost because the U.S. is being a pain in the butt about it. And so it really brought a lot of people together. And there wasn't anything like Climate Gate that happened in Copenhagen in 2009 that really gummed things up. And so it's a good thing thing it's going to accomplish a lot of good it remains to be seen if it's going to solve the problem that's a great one yeah that that also that was that was on my list and then i but there were just too many other things to pile in there so uh but yeah i I mean i would recognize that the agreement ratification of the agreement is really important so yeah i i agree paris was not on my list either and part of that is the timing that it it happened so long ago that that it feels like old news. But I, I, I think Doug is is wise to recognize that it does reflect a, an international consensus um, that may be larger than what's happening on a on a micro level here in the United States. Mm-hmm. OK, Dan, let's, let's do your number one. Sure. Number one, no doubt in my mind, the, the biggest the biggest story about climate uh, for the year is uh, Trump Uber Alice, um, <laughs> the uh, election of spectacular. Yep sociopath moron to our presidency portends just at absolute best a a complete halt in the positive steps that the United States has taken or or may may be planning to take. And at worst, a return to complete uh, ignorance. So I'm terrified. uh, I'm outraged. And uh, it has to be the biggest story of the year. No doubt. (laughs) No doubt with me. I would agree completely with that. That is the number one item on my list the implications are are huge as they say (laughs) but the hands are tiny yes (laughs) okay we we've gone three times that we've gone that so i want to end this on a really positive note as dan said this is a positive podcast even though climate change is sobering news and so i'm actually quite shocked and a little bit offended that this did not end up on any of your list and so the biggest climate change story of 2016 mm. was the launch of America Adapts, the climate change podcast. <laughs> At, Hooray. <laughs> yes. There you go. At there number you one. Go. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. It didn't even make your list, Dan. I, my, my, my shame is infinite. 
I mean, it's just, it was groundbreaking sort of thing. And so here we are, you know, we're talking about it and it made it the number one. So that it's incredible. So there you go. Well, yeah. Kudos to you, Doug, for getting all this off the ground. And, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, best Indeed. wishes for 2017 and lots of success. No, for I, someone both Tim and I thought was completely incompetent, the, uh, the achievements of America adapts have been stellar and, uh, it's, it's an honor to be part of it. I just want to acknowledge both of you have been, you know, a huge part of why this podcast has been a success, and I truly mean that. Tim has been a cheerleader. Dan has been a huge supporter behind the scenes, and a lot of he's brainstorming and giving me stuff. And so I thank you both for your support. And so 2017, I, I have high ambitions that we're going to have some great conversations. So thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. All right, everybody, that's America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. Have a happy holiday season. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our top five climate change stories of the year. Thanks to Tim Watkins and Dan Ackerstein for joining with me to have that discussion. Very interesting discussion for me. Okay, now the final part of the episode. This is the bonus, bonus material for this holiday special. And again, if you are new to this podcast, this is a very unusual sort of podcast. Having a little bit of fun for your holiday travels, I've invited Dan Ackerstein to come on, and we're going to talk about climate change at the movies. And we're going to list what we think are some of the best movies that talk about climate change and have a listen and see how we approach this subject. Hopefully you'll you'll enjoy it for what it's worth. And uh, again, thanks to Dan for coming on and sharing his perspectives on what climate change means at the movies. I think in the coming years, we'll probably see more and more of it. But we take a crack at listing of our top two each and then just discussing where we saw climate change relevant in those movies. And we talk about the science in those movies and many other things. So stick around. All right. Thanks. I am gravely disappointed. Again, you have made me unleash my jokes of all. Hi, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons, your host. We have a special episode today. I've been hearing feedback from some of our non-science type listeners that some of the subjects that we're covering are a little bit too serious. And so I thought... As I think I'm going to have this as a holiday special, we want to talk about climate change and adaptation, but we're going to bring popular culture into this. And so I invited a friend and actually a somewhat an expert generally in the field, and it's Dan Ackerstein. Dan, are you out there? I'm here, Doug. Thanks for having me. Okay, Dan, who are you? Oh, uh, well, my name is Dan Ackerstein. I am a uh, sustainability consultant based in Santa Cruz, California. Um, I specialize in um, helping existing buildings. Uh, reduce their environmental impacts, um, their, their sort of current operations. So um, most of the green building industry is, is just that. It's about building new buildings. Um, and my niche uh, focuses mostly on existing buildings, the buildings that we're already occupying, and, um, and reducing uh, energy use, water use, uh, waste generation, things like that. So that, the whole lead thing. Yes, exactly. The whole lead thing. A, 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 a subset of the, of the lead universe is, is mine. Isn't the lead thing just some big greenwashing thing that like Exxon came up with? I mean, is it really helpful? Is it really helping anything? It's a complete scam. And you know, when, when we're, when we're recording, I won't say that, but you know, no, this is on the air right now. (laughs) Lead is a fantastic tool for, um, for guiding buildings in improving performance and in um, recognizing those buildings. Um, lead does not do, uh, lead doesn't solve all the problems for the built environment, particularly in terms of climate, um, but it is a it is a part of the solution and a, a start to the conversation. Um, 
And I would note to our listeners that he's based in California, that where you can actually make a living doing lead kind of work. So <laughs> welcome to other states. And That is true. That is true. We have uh, flying cars and jetpacks as well. So we look forward to the rest of you joining us. Excellent. Appreciate that. Um, so lead is a very technical thing, and we're not going to talk about that at all. We spent way too much time on it already. I want to jump into what everyone's on here for is that, as I was chatting with Dan about what would be some topics that your average listener might be interested in to learn more about adaptation, we thought what would be some good movies to talk about that demonstrated maybe climate change, how people are adapting to climate change, and we quickly settled on post-apocalyptic films. Dan and I are longtime fans of the genre. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, it's absolutely accurate. I feel like like we we've been committed to the post-apocalypse you know, for, for 20 years at least. And, uh, I think most of society is, is just now coming around to the enthusiasm that we've always had for the complete collapse of society and, uh, the, the deterioration of social order. It's, it's a, it's a favorite topic. Well, you know, that's actually a pretty accurate assessment. I, I would say probably in the last 10, 15 years, you see a lot, and the whole zombie genre is almost post apocalyptic, but mid eighties, you and I, we're looking at these things. I mean, we were cutting edge. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that we we were the vanguard of appreciation for this this genre. You know, there's the and I think that we represented a, a small subset of the population who appreciated the sort of the nexus between the the zombie genre and the uh, the more sort of conventional post apocalyptic films. They're, they're, the overlap there is obvious, and and I think I think we'll touch on it today. Well, yep, that was us keeping this genre afloat on Betamax. There we were all those years until <laughs> they finally got a little bit of resources to, uh, to to support it in Hollywood. So that's a good thing. We we should be applauded. I, that's what I'm getting at here. So. Oh, I think history will will vindicate us absolutely. Excellent. Okay, so what I asked Dan was to come up with his top two movies that sort of represented this, and to give people a little bit more structure. And we don't have a lot of structure because. Quite frankly, it's going to be kind of an unusual conversation, but we wanted to talk about how these movies are relevant to climate change and then talk a little bit about this is an adaptation podcast. How can we learn some adaptation lessons from these movies? And so we each have our own top two, but then we're going to bring up other movies probably right afterwards or we'll thread them into those discussions and we might won't go into as much detail as those because it's just there's a ton, but some of them just don't lend themselves to this as much as they should. So on that note, Number one, I'm going to let Dan, since you are the guest, say what your number one is. And you know what? So people, we're going to give you, for those people that are just, it, uh, shame on you, don't know these movies, and you're going to give a brief yeah. summary. Right? <laughs> that, seems, that seems unlikely. That seems, seems unlikely. unlikely. This is mainstream uh, stuff we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 Uh, welcome to my wife. Um, she wouldn't know any, any of the movies on this list. And a uh, little summary of the movie. And then I want you to talk about, is the science strong? And then yep. we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about, okay, what adaptation came out of those movies or what adaptation recommendations would we give to the makers of these movies? If, if let's say even these characters were real, these are w- real universes and like, how could they adapt even further? So that's, that's kind sure. of the structure. So let's jump right into it. What do you got? Yeah. So, um, I've, I've got, I've got a, a whole lot of, of sort of film, um, and, and media to talk about. Um, my first, the first film I'd like to talk about is, I think it will come as a surprise to no one. The conversation about, about climate change and adaptation has to begin with, um, with Mel Gibson. It has to begin with The Road Warrior. 
Um, this is an important movie. This is arguably a defining movie for the genre. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have to tell our listeners what it's about. Um, Mel yes, Gibson, you do. Tell them what it's about. Mel Gibson plays a uh, a handsome young law enforcement <laughs> officer, sort of sort of vagabonding his way around the Australian countryside, getting into clever misadventures, uh, most of which involve a gang of mutant thugs. He he comes upon a a village of poorly dressed, ill kempt um, survivors. And, uh, and helps them realize their dreams. It's a, it's a touching story. His anti-Semitism is almost invisible in the, in the entirety of the film. And, uh, I think it, I think it says a lot about, about climate and about, uh, about people. So, okay. So the, what exactly is the plot though? Oh, great question. I'm sure there is one. The plot seems to have a lot to do with cars crashing into each other. Mel Gibson is, uh, he's traveling through the wasteland. And his car crashes and some other cars seem to crash. And then there's some more crashing. There's also shooting. And so I think that's the essence of it is the crashing and the shooting and also some crashing. Okay. So how sound is the, the climate science in, in the movie? Spot on, really. I mean, I think that the most likely outcome of, of, you know, dramatic climate change is that we will all sort of join up with uh, a motorcycle gang and and wear leather chaps and uh, give each other really fancy haircuts and just sort of drive around crashing into each other. I I don't I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be exactly how society deals with uh, with a changing climate. You know that that to me is the definition of resilience. Like are are we going to be able to build effective dune buggies that can crash into another dune buggy um, and kill? sort of both parties equally effectively. It's it's a tall order. I believe in humanity. I guess if people who are familiar with the film, they would say, okay, there were nukes that went off and it led to this sort of society that kind of fell apart. But I would say don't focus on that. Like where they're living is this wasteland and you could easily equate the impacts of climate change to, you know, that's what the future's like. And so I almost see it like a total global warming kind of film. You, they don't never even show the nukes. And so – Oh, yeah. Yeah, Miller's very, he's intentionally vague about, about sort of what precipitates the apocalypse in, in that movie. I think that the, 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 the context in which the film was released, we all assumed it would be nuclear holocaust. But were you to release the roadware today, um, it's quite safe to assume that, that climate change might be the, the, uh, the fundamental cause behind, um, behind the, the dissolution of society. So even if it's global warming, even if it's nukes, it's this cha- this climate that's destroyed the society. Now, let's see if you can identify what's the irony that's threaded throughout this entire movie. Global warming, climate change. What, what's, you know where I'm going with this? I don't, I don't, that's a tough question. You know, I, I, I have a lot of questions about the film itself and sort of the, the intellectual integrity from a scientific standpoint, you know, this, this, this group of this, this little community of folks living out in the wasteland seems to have found all kinds of gasoline and have absolutely no source for water, not to mention food. And I'm troubled by that. I don't think that they're photosynthesizing. I don't um, see any solar panels at all. Zero. I Nope. No panels, no, no PV, no, no hot water. So I have questions about hygiene, obviously. But I'm I'm interested in your idea as to a, a a coherent narrative thread. Well, okay, so you just you acknowledge it somewhat is 
Oil. Oil. Mm. So here's the society that's been ruined because of what's happened to the atmosphere, if we're assuming this climate change. And so yet even the antagonists and the protagonists are obsessed with getting oil. That's what led them into this problem in the first place. And yet that's all they want. This society hasn't grown at all. That's how, that's my takeaway message. That's dark. That's a really dark vision you have there. I mean, I, I, you say that and I'm, it's forcing me to rethink my own, my own sort of perspective on the film because, you know, for years I've thought of Lord Humongous as essentially a, an optimistic character, you know, as, as, as someone pointing towards a brighter future where, you know, horrifically disfiguring injuries could be covered up with a stainless steel hockey mask and society would say, sure, you can lead us in a murderous assault. Um, it's fine. That doesn't, that doesn't sort of, doesn't disqualify you from being, uh, being someone that we look up to and, uh, and are willing to, to get behind. So. Well, I, I think you, you bring up the humongous and he's, I think he's one of cinema's most misunderstood characters. I'm looking at some of the dialogue and listen, listen to this. Be still my dog of war. I understand your pain. We've all lost someone we love, but we do it my way. In mm. fact, that's almost like a rhyme, but I understand your pain. He's empathetic. That's beautiful. We've oh, yeah. lost someone we love. Can you imagine the humongous actually loving someone? Well, apparently he, he did. He, he suffered. suffered. Yep. This is a beautiful man. His and heart is broken. He's heart portrayed is broken. as a bad guy. He's been forced into a, a situation. You know, the, 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 there's really no way out. He's painted himself into a corner. He has this group of mutant bikers who are dependent on him. You know, they're looking to him. He's, I don't want to say a father figure, but there's clearly a, 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 a role there. There's clearly an emotional connection. And, then, you know, is he going to let them down? Is he going to say, I'm sorry, I don't have gasoline? You know, it, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He's been through too much. He's suffered too long. Give him the gas and he'll give you free passage through the wasteland. That's a reasonable man. Well, that's you know? it. If we want to talk adaptation, I think the humongous was probably the only one. I mean, Mad Max, he was just a blank slate. He wasn't talking adaptation. He was just trying to survive. Here again is another quote from the humongous. There has been too much violence, too much pain, but mm-hmm. I have an honorable compromise. Mm-hmm. Just walk away. Give me your pump, the oil, the gasoline, the whole compound, and I'll spare your lives. Yep. Just walk away and we'll give you safe passageway in the wastelands. Just walk away and there will be an end to the horror. To me, just walk away means just adapt to climate change. An end to the horror. You know, it's, it's as if he's looking in a mirror and saying to, it's as if he's negotiating with his, with him, himself. You know, it's, it's, it is kind of touching. I mean, he's really asking himself, can I, do I have the power to end this horror? Um, can you, can we partner to end the horror? And that's, uh, you know, that's a powerful message for, for climate, for, for, for policymakers, for all of us. Um, well, the, the big, um, scene in the movie is the, the big chase at the end where they're, they, they think they have the oil in the big oil tanker and then Humongous yeah. and his gang is going after him. And to me, I almost want to think, all right, I've been to a lot of adaptation workshops and you have different stakeholders who are there and they don't necessarily all have the same goals, but you try to get there and you compromise. And so is that oil chase its own sort of like adaptation workshop? I mean, they're, they're trying to figure out how to move ahead in the future. What sort of recommendations would you make to like the humongous or Mad Max to have, you know, a less violent kind of adaptation response? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. And, you know, we're, where I would point the example that I would point to in this film uh, is, is really actually quite robust. 
the character of Papagayo. He is the leader. He has the gas. He has established a beachhead of civilization um, in what is otherwise a, 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 a murderous wasteland. And what does he do? He goes with the tanker full of gas slash sand. He is the leader who's willing to sacrifice himself to the to the end of ensuring his people survive. That's what the United States needs to be doing here. America needs to take a leadership role in terms of climate, be willing to get into their dune buggy and drive off with a tanker full of sand and sacrifice in the short term so that long-term civilization can endure. Papagayo is a model for American policy in the 21st century, which well said, well said. I, th- I think it's, I think it's why George Miller made the film. I think he was prescient in that way. Well, you know, I look at this and the, you know, the science isn't that strong in this movie and you could fit the dialogue from this movie on probably a half a page of paper and like, I'll throw these things out here. Here's some, some quotes you're probably familiar with. Greetings from the humongous, the Lord humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of rock and roll. Here's another one. I am gravely disappointed. Again, you have made me unleash my dogs of war. I mean, is there any science in any of that? I don't know. I don't know about science. I mean, I think it's a, it does suggest that there's some, you know, some Middle Eastern geopolitics involved because, you know, obviously he's, it's a subtle reference to Iran and the, the revolution sure, sure. there. I got that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, there's, <laughs> I don't mean to insult our listeners, but, um, I, I do want to be clear. Uh, you know, it's hard. I think that a lot of what Miller's doing is speaking an allegory here and that the science is a couple layers underneath what we're seeing on the screen. So, you know, did some of his later films perhaps provide a more coherent scientific uh, worldview? Yeah, I think that they did. I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, just barely. All right. You know what? So I think on a scale of one to 10, if we wanted to recommend this as a climate change movie, it's a 13. It's a 13. (laughs) I give it a 13 as just a piece of Hollywood history, but I give it maybe a three when it comes to like, you know, would I show this at an adaptation workshop? I don't oh, wow. Know. Yes. Like, instead okay. of talking about doing vulnerability assessment, talking about mm-hmm. scenario. Pl- well, you know what? Scenario planning. You know what? I have to reconsider because showing this movie and saying, hey, this could be one scenario that the world might endure. Mm-hmm. Play for it. Because scenario planning, as you know, Dan, is one of the major tools for climate change planning. And like we could show all the movies that we're recommending here as the various scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Plan for this. You know, if you don't know how to fire a wrist mounted crossbow, you might want to start brush up, brushing up on that. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's within your grasp. Um, yeah, I know I'd much rather watch the road warrior than listen to you talk about scenario planning, but I, I may be in the minority of your, of your listenership. Oh, you haven't heard me go on scenario planning. Um, okay, thanks. So we have The Road Warrior, number one for Dan, or just top two there. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to share my top two in, in no specific order. This is really tough. The Road Warrior was really up there, and he grabbed it. And so I went with a very predictable one here, but I think it lends itself to some other conversations, is The Day After Tomorrow. And yeah. so brief summary of all the movies we're going to talk about, it's probably the one that did the best at the box office, came out maybe, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. And if people recall, uh, it's a movie where <laughs> the climate science is absurd, as opposed to The Road Warrior, where for whatever reason with global warming, and I can't quite remember exactly the science, but what they, the, the Gulf Stream where the warm water goes north, 
that shuts down and creates this sort of polar vortex. And then all of a sudden the entire United States kind of freezes and that goes against everything you would you really think about with climate change. Things are going to get warmer. Maybe there's some spots we get a little bit cooler. And just as an aside, as I was doing some research on this this podcast, I, but they had like the top eight climate change Hollywood movies, and I think pretty much all eight dealt with a frozen Earth. You know, Snowpiercer and The Day After Tomorrow and. Uh, there Why was, is that? What, what what's what's going on there, Hollywood? You know, th- there are some resources in Hollywood that I've dealt with before that actually try to provide sound science to Hollywood, and for whatever reason, I think it lends itself to better visuals. Maybe just people wandering around in nasty tank tops. You know, they don't want to film these kind of things because it's so hot out. Oh, but think, you know, people in their bathing suits that could be kind of visually appealing. But and so anyway, the day after tomorrow, it, it freezes. Everything freezes, and it freezes within a matter of like what forty eight hours. It's the end of the United States as we know in forty eight hours. Okay, so the science here. Now we're into the science. Science is terrible, and the whole point of the movie is that the main character, who's a uh, a dashing meteorologist, or I think maybe he was a climatologist, has to go find his son in New York, who's buried under snow in the library up there. He has to go rescue him, bring him back, and then they just all the Americans make this is the irony. This is it, it preceded the Donald Trump that they all had to move to Mexico because North America was too cold. So they all these people Ooh. migrated to Mexico. It was an entertaining film to watch if you were like on an airplane and you needed to kill an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. But the science was terrible. But it's, you know, one of the most popular climate change movies out there, and I give them credit because it, you know, it actually there was a huge pulse of interest in climate change after that movie came out. Unfortunately, your average viewer is going to be associating climate change potentially with freezing, which is terrible. And from the adaptation component of it, I think there's actually it was it was almost a throwaway last two minutes, and then the people of the U.S. moved to Mexico. But they were adapting. They were adapting to this cold weather. They moved south. There's going to be mass migrations likely with uh, climate change. In all likelihood, they're going to be moving north. But in this movie, they move south. But, uh, yeah, I, I give it a little – you know, it served its purpose. So what do you think of the movie? I mean, I have a lot of questions about this movie and a lot of concerns with it. I'm happy that it put Jake Gyllenhaal on the map <laughs> because – We needed you know, that. We needed that, exactly. Um, and anytime – Dennis Quaid is getting work. I feel good about it. But there's – so I think that the biggest disservice that the movie does scientifically is that it it sort of reinforces the idea that climate change is going to take place in a really short time scale on, on, a, on a sort of, you know, a, a hurricane, earthquake, tsunami time scale. Um, and that anything short of that is somehow not a, a crisis just because it's not unfolding in, in sort of real time. It, it, as I recall – the snowstorm that blankets New York City puts them something on, you know, under, under something like, like 200 feet of snow in a matter of, in a matter of days. And I feel like that's an unlikely outcome from a, from a climate change standpoint. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that our imaginations are, are limited to sort of severe weather events rather than, than sort of change over time. That's sort of. That's, that's my, my biggest frustration with it beyond the, of course, the spectacular inanity of the entirety of the plot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dennis Quaid, you know, he hasn't really done much since Inner Space, but, uh, I guess that was his big comeback. 
And then, you know, there's that scene with the wolves that were, it released from the zoo. And of course, the first thing they're going to do is go attack. Yeah. Okay. Right. They're going to wolves. They, I do remember that. That's a really bad movie, Doug. I'm almost, <laughs> I'm almost disappointed that you brought it up. I feel, I feel like we're, we're doing your listeners a disservice by even reminding them that it exists. No, we, I had to pick something that they would have heard about. Many of them are thinking Road Warrior and that, you know, they're probably thinking some bad reality show. So. Okay. Well, I have another one. I have another another film if you're ready to move on. Well, let me just think real quick. So adaptation, yeah, yeah, it covered it. So on a scale of 1 to 10 on is a climate change movie, what do you give it? Uh, what did we settle on with Road Warrior? Was that a was that a, a, a 17? 17. I gave it a 7. I, I upped it you from gave 3. give it a 7. Okay. I'm going to give it a 2.5. 2.5? Okay. I'll give it a 5 in the 5 purely from the sense that it brought attention to the issue of climate change, that everything else was garbage, just garbage science, garbage acting, and garbage special effects. There you go. <laughs> Three garbage thumbs not up. Many, not many redeeming qualities there. Okay, so your second movie. So my second movie um, is – I'd like to talk about a, a subcategory of, of climate-related movies and post-apocalyptic movies, and that – can be most most conveniently thought of as the as the the Costner subcategory. <laughs> um, Kevin Costner for an, uh, a few years there was kind of making post apocalyptic movies um, his his bread and butter, and I, I think he felt like he found a niche and, uh, and and could really you know that that was that was his corner, um, and he was was quite quite, comf- quite comfortable on that corner and and making money on it. So. The movies that are um, on my mind, primarily Waterworld, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent, uh, the cinematic classic, uh, multiple Oscar winner, I, I, I don't remember exactly how many and for what, uh, The Postman. The Postman, yes. The Postman, yeah. Important films. Um, for our listeners who aren't familiar, Waterworld uh, basically is a story about climate change, very specifically, um, climate change results in the mel- melting of, of all the ice at both poles, which raises sea levels by multiple thousands of feet, thus immersing the entirety of the earth in water. Uh, humanity living out its quite limited days on floating barges and oil platforms and similar constructs, none of which seem to slow people down from either both feeding themselves and or murdering each other on on jet skis. Do you recall the time frame? I was it a hundred years since like everything got flooded? I forgot what they they listed as the time frame. That's a that's a good question. I, I think it does define a time frame, but I think we can assume that those numbers were chosen at random by a trained <laughs> dolphin. <laughs> a drunk monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I don't I don't think that they were looking at a at looking carefully at a, a, a realistic time scale when they when they did oh, how long would it take for the poles to melt and then when you know uh, how long would it take for society to reconstruct itself around these floating husks? Well, are you done? Well, I'm not really done. I could talk a long time <laughs> no. about Waterworld. It's an important movie. So the, the the crux of the film, you know, the the, the real driver behind the narrative is a, a group of again a group of survivors, a group of adapters, as the case may be, are believe that they uh, they may have found a a map to what they uh, affectionately think of as dry land, mythical dry land. And uh, Kevin Costner, again, a sort of wandering vagabond, arrives on the scene and 
empathizes with the, the small group of survivors and attempts to help them find this mythical dry land. It really does have a surprising amount in common. It's an eerie set of coincidences how much it has in common with Mad Max, uh, with the Road Warrior film. It, it's, it's almost as if Costner had seen the Road Warrior before making Waterworld, which, you know, obviously that, that didn't happen. He would, he would never, never adapt someone else's ideas. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's the film. That's the essence of it. Uh, turns out, spoiler alert, turns out Kevin Costner has gills. Yes. I really, I remember fondly the gills. Has gills. Yep. You know, uh, I, the important movie, I'm glad you picked it. And when you mentioned Postman, and I was thinking, for whatever reason, Kevin Costner went through this post apocalyptic phase. And, you know, to mm-hmm. his credit, like these were bad movies, but to his credit, he went through that phase. Not everybody yes. goes through that phase. And, at the round, I think within a couple of years of the Postman coming out, there was this an Italian film that came out, and it was Il Postino, and it was this Oscar-winning Italian film. And so whenever I saw like a commercial for the Postman with Kevin Costner, I'd be like, "Oh, let's watch Il Postino." And uh, anyway, it's a very fond memory of mine. El Postino, this terrible post-apocalyptic film. That okay. may be the only that may be the only positive memory that anyone has associated with the Postman because it was truly a horrible, horrible movie. I do I do recall the bad guy is the same guy who turned up as um Bruce Willis right hand man in the asteroid movie that was so good with the Aerosmith soundtrack. Um, oh, right, yeah. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck's big breakthrough at all. Yes. Yes, Ben Ben Affleck is big his breakthrough film. <laughs> well, let's go back to Waterworld. Let's not waste any more time on the postman, El Postino. So Waterworld, what really bothered me is that you know, the science. Let's talk about science. If you melted even the ice that's in my refrigerator, I think they, the seas would rise something like 278 feet. You would lose most of Florida, probably not even all of Florida. And yet they had the entire world flooding. Huge oversight. But it would have screwed the movie if, like, you know, they didn't flood the entire earth. But big problem. I mean, there's just not that much ice. Look, the, the math doesn't work. You have even within the film, even with within the film's sort of own canon, the math doesn't work. Here we have the entire world underwater, and spoiler alert: Mount Everest is the only part of the Earth that that is in fact remaining dry land. Mount Everest, I believe, twenty one thousand feet. Is that right, Doug? Twenty nine. Twenty nine thousand feet. Earlier in the movie, we discover that Kurt Russell. I'm sorry, Kevin Costner. <laughs> Kevin Costner is stalking poor Kurt Russell. <laughs> this is a film that Kurt Russell could have added a lot to. Um, Kevin Costner's character is diving down to the city of Denver to to grab artifacts and soil to bring to the surface. That means that Kevin Costner, twenty nine thousand minus five thousand, is diving to a depth of twenty four thousand feet. I just don't see it. I don't see his 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 evolutionary um, adaptation extending to a twenty five thousand foot underwater dive. I, I don't think that sea lions can do that. I don't know <laughs> why you know, can. but a, a sperm whale can't get that deep. Why can why can Kevin Costner? Yeah, that that big flaw. And again, they were all going around on these wave runners. Which hey, I love wave runners. I have a lot of fun on wave runners. But they would not survive a hundred years in marine environments, even with the best mechanic working on them. And they had these giant tankers. And quite frankly, it wouldn't take a big leap to sort of say maybe they should be on sailboats. Let's use the wind. But they they just had it sort of an oil based modes of transportation. 
really stupid, stupid, stupid. I guess Kevin Costner's character, who I think he was called the Mariner, he he had a sailboat maybe, but he had that he, he had that tomato plant, and I was I was infatuated with that tomato plant that he kept on his boat that he was waiting for it to really fruit. So you he, they, that was almost like its own character, a little an aside there, but the the tomato plant. I think that the tomato plant gave the most memorable performance. Right. <laughs> I think we can agree that it was the tomato plant, Dennis Hopper, and and then somewhere after that, you know, some inanimate objects. Yeah, well, I cried when it got smashed. It got smashed or something. I cried. It was it was a touching moment. Yes, and when like yep. the rest of the humans got killed, it was just like shrug. So yeah, it does make you wonder about scurvy because you know that tomato would have been helpful. From a vitamin C standpoint, and uh, and without it, there's a lot of people turning turning orange. Well, beyond Dennis Hopper's over the top performance, I let's talk about the adaptation concepts in that film. Mm-hmm. Poor job adapting to climate change. They really, I mean, I know they're trying to find dry land, but is it? There's like a handful of people left, and they're warring with each other. Really silly. But oh, yeah. you, you'd mentioned the gills on Kevin Costner's character, mm-hmm. and you know if. The science is starting to identify sort of microevolutions in wildlife species based on climate change. And so his gills might be in the realm of possibility over like maybe a 100, 200-year time frame, gills, breathing underwater. And so yeah. microevolution is happening. That's sound science right now, climate change. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm kind of counting on it. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't see any reason why evolution shouldn't be able to speed up by multiple orders of magnitude and uh, for us to develop an entirely different form of respiration in uh, in the matter of a couple lifetimes seems seems entirely scientifically sound to me okay all right let's let's rank this movie water world oh gosh water world awful movie um on a scale of one to ten it's probably not gonna be as low as it should be I give it a one for quality, but I give it a solid four to five for just overall climate change relevance because melting of the ice, you know, it, it, it didn't freeze everything. That was yep. kind of nice. There was a little bit of microevolution. That's actually an accurate thing. The literature's starting to show that now. And what else that, yeah, you know, I'm with you. I mean, I, I actually am going to give it a, a high score. I'm going to give it an eight. Wow. Um, I think that, that you have at least the, the scientific process, you know, is the, the, the climate change process is represent, represented accurately. The world will be warmer. Um, I think that they make a compelling case, um, for water scarcity, uh, general resource scarcity, but particularly for the scarcity of fresh water. I think, uh, I think that they're, they're sort of right on target with that. Um, and I think that, uh, that, that Kevin Costner's haircut is, is one that will endure in, uh, in a post Climate change society. <laughs> they nailed it. Was they it nailed a, it. Was it a mullet in that that movie? Yeah, it's kind of a mullet. It's kind of a you know. I wouldn't say it's business in the front, but it's definitely party in the back. And and you know, I think that's I think that's how we're gonna feel when when ninety nine percent of humanity is 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 underwater. Well, listen, we're still talking about Waterworld. Can you think of any movie that Kevin Costner's done in the last ten years that we talk about or even know? I. I'm pretty sure that Kevin Costner, you know, is, 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 has been buried, buried in a cave for the last 10 years. I don't, I can't speak to his current whereabouts. He could have hung it up. He had, uh, what was it? No way out, dances with wolves and water world. And that's a career right there. So nothing to be ashamed of with those. Nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of. Exactly. Okay. All right. So, all right. I'm going to go to my second movie and, you know, I'm going to actually switch it from what I originally had, because I think we covered a lot of that ground. It was originally 
Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. But I think people like might be tired of, you know, Warrior of the Wasteland. Just let's just go ahead and rank that film on a scale of one to ten. Anyway, I give it a ten because, you know, when you have a movie like with Master Blaster and all these concepts, it's it's wonderful. It's just it's helpful. And listeners out there, if you want a great film somewhat related to climate change, I recommend Beyond Thunderdome. It's a ten. It's, it's a, a ten. ten. There's no question. It's a ten. It's a brilliant film. It, 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 it has multiple narratives intertwined. Um, cinematically, it's 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 sound. It's it's. I, 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 there's nothing else to say about it. You well, know? yeah, sure, there is plenty of else to say, but it, it's like a date film. It's a cuddle on it's, the couch with your spouse film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. That's not what we're here for. Okay, mm-hmm. so what I'm going to go with, and it's a very thoughtful film, but I still don't know if I actually enjoyed it that much. Is Interstellar. And it's a relatively new film. Matt McConaughey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People are familiar with it. Christopher Nolan, guy who gave us the Dark Knight, Batman movies. So Interstellar okay. is what's happened to the Earth. That there's some sort of blight going on, but I think the allusions to climate change are pretty direct. I mean, they talk about this blight that wiped out all the crops out there and that society's barely hanging on and all they're eating is corn, which, oh my goodness, corn? I mean, why couldn't it have been the mango tree or something? But it's just corn. And so the Matt McConaughey, who's a farmer but a former astronaut, they're just everyone's just sort of living till they die because they know things are going to just get bad. NASA comes along and says, hey, we found um, a wormhole on the other side of Saturn and we have evidence that it's going to lead to other places where humanity could live. And so they get Matt McConaughey with some other folks to go travel into this wormhole to do a little bit more reconnaissance to hopefully find a way for humans to go into the wormhole and find some place where humanity can live. And so there you go. I think I, I covered most of the major points. Now, why is it a climate change film? Well, there's this blight. The earth is degrading. Humanity can't live on it. And even though it goes into space and it's like this sci-fi film, what I think is very useful is that does humanity think it's going to technology its way out of this problem? And that movie sort of says that's what we're going to do. You know, We're going to build ships. Or we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to leave the earth. Well, we can just do something else. And, you know, that's a very cynical thought. You know, the earth is here. We've got to protect it. What if, what if um, there's only one earth for us? And that movie assumed that we could just solve our problems by going somewhere else. So that's, I think, a very cynical message that it had. And um, on top of a very weak performance by Matt Damon, I might add, um, it uh, – yeah, I, I don't think it was very helpful, but it also was probably a likely scenario that where we think technology, geoengineering, getting carbon out of the atmosphere, we're going to really attempt some really crazy things, I think, over the next 50 years. And so the movie was useful in that way. Thoughts? Uh, I, I, I certainly agree. I was I applaud the filmmakers for their uh, the the sort of sharpness with which they brought the implications of climate change to bear. As a um, as a sort of as a premise for the movie, uh, I think they did a really good job of of kind of illustrating that this is a um, uh, you know that that there are scenarios out there um, where even the affluent nations um, of the world are going to are going to feel a sense of desperation around climate, and um, that's exactly what happened in this movie. Um, obviously, they spent a whole lot of time on the space and space time physics business. But, uh, but the, the premise is, is an accurate sort of depiction of, of uh, a world deeply affected by climate. Yeah. And 
part of the problem with this movie, there's not any great quotes. You look at a movie like Road Warrior, and I could quote it all day. Can you think of one quote from Interstellar? I, I mean, I, 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 did they, was there even any dialogue? I don't, I don't know. I don't recall. It was very moody, and yet I, I, I use it just because it was more serious film, and I think the Earth sort of this entropy, things falling apart, that's useful. And mm-hmm. their attempt at adapting to climate change was to leave the planet. And darn it, that's not the message I'm trying to give on this podcast. You know, I'm not going to bring on anyone that's going to recommend that we leave the planet as a, a way that we're going to adapt to climate change. And so, again, very cynical uh, a movie in that respect. That being said, let's agree that Interstellar had some unbelievable cameos. You've got Casey Affleck, you've got Matt Damon, you've got, I guess it's not a cameo, but you've got Michael Caine, you've got John Lithgow. I mean, what are these people doing in this movie? Topher Grace is in this movie. Let's move on. All right, on a scale of 1 to 10, Interstellar, I give it a solid... Six and a half. You know, some of the concepts of it are, are solid. It's just, I, mean, I would give it higher if I just wasn't so kind of annoyed by things in it, too. Steady five. It's a steady five. You know, the bookshelf business. Come on. I just I, I didn't need to see that nonsense at the end. But OK, so we've covered four movies, our top four. But I, I want to say let's let's really quickly kind of get in some honorable mentions here. I have contemplated doing um, Escape from New York. You know, not yep. there wasn't necessarily a climate change. It was just society broke down. I don't think they under like people were at war, or whatever. There wasn't a climate change thing, but I liked the message of like this is while society's breaking down. Let's turn New York into a uh, ultra security prison, and the the idea that people like Snake Plissken would kind of come out in a climate change world, I totally think that's possible. He's he's a likely demographic to kind of come out in that universe. Oh, yeah. Snake Plissken is a sure thing. Yeah. Yep. We learned a lot um, from Snake Plissken. And the less appreciated Escape from L.A., that not so good. Um, not sure mm. if there was any <laughs> climate change lessons there. You know, it's, you know, the tomato, tomato is what I would say. Right. And so I also put down The Terminator. And here's a real sci-fi film. But to me, you know, The Terminator, it's more of like, uh, you know, it's a lesson learned. And so even though there's time traveling people, I don't think there's going to be any time traveling with climate change. But Al Gore is almost like the Kyle Reese character coming back and saying, hey, guys, deal with this climate change issue. You know, the, the future is not set. And the oil industry and the characters in the oil industry, that's the Terminator. They coming back and keeping us from addressing these things. And so I think there's some similarities of using Terminator. So we need to wrap this up. And so I think... People probably learned a lot about climate change through our our journey through Hollywood. And I I think my conclusion is that Hollywood sucks. Hollywood doesn't get climate change. Right now, climate change is dominated by a bunch of documentaries that no one watches. We need I, I think the closest to an environmental film that did well was Avatar, and that's a stretch to really kind of think environmental issues. And so I think people need to whip out their their VCRs and and put in some of these movies that we talked about today, and maybe there could be some progress on climate change because of what we've recommended here today. Yeah, see, see, I'm, I'm more optimistic, Doug. I think that that what Hollywood has shown us is that they are capable, uh, creative imagination around climate change. That there's a lot of thinking that's gone into this over the years, and that you know the cream has risen to the top. Okay, well, 
So any parting thoughts for our listeners here? Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I, I'm glad I didn't invite any expert on with climate change because they probably wouldn't have gotten it. They wouldn't, they don't understand Hollywood. They don't understand how popular culture influences people, but you do. And I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm glad you didn't invite any other experts on climate change as well. That's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's nice, nice for us to just be able to talk about this, uh, unregulated by, uh, by perhaps less, less well-informed minds. So, so thanks for having me. I'll look forward to our, our next conversation. I, I think you said it was going to be about the, your, your, our favorite, our favorite music videos about climate change. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dan. And if you want to get a hold of Dan, he's not going to provide any contact information. He's, he's going off the grid after this. And I desperately hope that no one associated with my professional career finds out about this. Yes. We learned a lot of new things about lead. It's just greenwashing to at its worst, most cynical. And yeah, that's it. That's uh, it all for American apps, the climate change podcast. And I'll have show notes and links to quotes and these movies on the show notes for the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me, Doug. Who run Barter Channel? Hey, everybody, that is a wrap for this episode of America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. Again, I am your host, Doug Parsons. Thanks for joining us in 2016. This was the launch of the podcast back in July, and thank you so much for, for joining in. If you're a regular listener, I truly appreciate you listening to the podcast. And like I said, 2017 will be even better. Even though all our speakers were fantastic, we are going to bring on new speakers. We're going to talk about new subjects, and there's all sorts of things talking to talk about with climate change, especially with the new administration coming in. And again, I have a website. Please visit the website. You can listen to the podcast straight from the website at americadaps.org. If you want to contact me with ideas for guests or you have comments or suggestions, please go email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Most people get the podcast on iTunes, and it's actually a little bit confusing for folks on how you can download a podcast. If you have an iPhone, you have actually have a podcast app that's installed. You just click it on and you search for America Daps, and it should show up. And then on, if you have an Android, you know, you can use Stitcher or even if you just search for America Adapts within your browser on your Android, you will find some sort of podcast app that will allow you to listen straight to your phone. Most people are listening to podcasts on your phone. So, again, podcasting is fun that way, but at the same time, it actually is a little bit confusing. It's not the normal way of just trying to find information. And if you are so inspired to write a review, it is greatly appreciated that you go into I, your iPhone and write a review on iTunes. And it take, it's a little bit tricky. Apple actually makes it a little bit trickier than it should be, but it, I mean, it is relatively simple. Please go in and write a review. I, I would greatly appreciate it. And also don't forget, this is an independent podcaster podcast. I am an independent podcaster and uh, would appreciate any financial support if you are so inclined. And there is a PayPal option at the website at americadaps.org. There is a community page where it's a smaller group that I'm able to sort of communicate directly. People post stories or they make comments on other things that I've done. So think about joining that. Just email me or just search for America Daps Community Group. And there's a Facebook page, too. And there's two different things. The community group is a little more interactive. And I, I tweet at USA Adapts. So please tweet me if you have some great stories, and I'll try to retweet all the things that you tweet to me. All right, everyone. Have a fantastic 2016. This is America Adapts. To you Happy holiday It's the holiday season And Santa Claus is coming round The Christmas snow is white on the ground And when old Santa gets in the town He'll be coming down the chimney down He'll be coming